As an infantry soldier, I spent a lot of time sleeping in the great outdoors. And most of the time when we slept in the field, we did so without any sort of a tent. We just laid on a mat that we carried on our rucksacks and covered up with a poncho liner so that we could get up and go at a moment's notice. However, every so often we were allowed to build what we called and what's called a, a hooch. And to build a hooch, you use a poncho, some tent stakes, and some bungee cords. And when you build your hooch, you had to build it strong enough to hold up if winds and a storm came up in the night. Now, since our building materials weren't the the sturdiest materials in the world, you had to build your hooch very carefully. Right? You had to build it low to the ground. And and this not only gave the wind less to grab onto, but it made for a smaller silhouette, made it harder for any enemy that was patrolling to see you. You had to tie it off in as many places as possible. Ponchos had eight reinforced rings on the outer edges that were for this purpose. You also had to be sure to cinch the hood, uh, cinch the hood closed and tie it off and keep it slightly elevated from the rest of the poncho. This made sure the rain didn't run into the poncho through the hood and made sure the poncho didn't have to hold water and therefore kind of sink in on top of you. And then, and possibly most importantly, you had to take time. The time necessary to build a hooch that would survive the wind and the rains. Then after you built your hooch, you pulled your gear and you in underneath it and you went to bed. And it was invariably at times you would, the storms would come in the night and and you would hear the screams of those who were getting wet and chasing after their ponchos uh, who had not taken the time, who had cut corners so they could get a few extra minutes of sleep and their their hooches didn't survive in the storm. Now, it's kind of interesting because it was rare that just looking at a hooch, if you could tell if it was sloppily made or not. I mean, some were clearly made badly, but most of them, they looked okay. It wasn't until the storms hit that you could tell that it wasn't built correctly. And many Christians today really are similar to those poorly built hooches. On the outside, they look okay. They have homes, they have cars, they have possessions and family and really just about anything that a person could want. They seem happy and healthy and and everything is fine with their life. But despite all appearances, their stability is flimsy. And their lack of stability is not seen until the storm comes into their life. And the upheaval of the storm, it shatters the image of stability that they've been projecting. And it brings all kinds of negative consequences into their lives. Sometimes the family is torn apart or severely damaged. Peace and contentment often become strangers. At times they experience psychological problems or physical illness. The joy and the victory that's meant to characterize the life of the follower of Christ is gone and seems it's never to return. All of this because the house was not, or the life is not built in the right way. Jesus closes out the Sermon on the Mount. He teaches us how to build our lives in a way that they will last regardless of the storms that we face. Open your Bible to Luke chapter 7 and verse 24. Page 738 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Jesus says, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority, not as one of the scribes. The title of the message this morning is built to last. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning... Bowing in your presence, surrendering this time to you. This is your time and we are in your house and we are studying your word. 
So we want today your will to be done in our lives. Lord, it would be wonderful if we could say there would never be any storms that came into our life. It would be wonderful if we could say that life would always be easy and gentle breezes and just smooth sailing. But we all know that's not true. Storms hit and storms hit hard and storms hit without warning so many times. Lord, we can look around and, and we do see wreckage. Lord, we see some that have gone through these storms and they come through on the other side devoted to You, loving You, serving You. But we also see those that their lives were wrecked as they went through this storm, that it, it tore down what they seemed to have built. And in many cases, they are not even seeking to try to rebuild their lives. What a tragedy. Father, we want our lives to be built to last. We don't want to have a, an appearance of being solid with You. We don't want to have an appearance of devotion to You. We don't want to have an appearance of a well-grounded faith in You. We want those things legitimately. We, we want to be solid. We want to be grounded. We want to be devoted to You. So today as we come to this time of the Word, guide us to lay aside any cares of life, any problems or stresses or burdens that we brought in, not because they're not important, but because Your Word is being spoken and Your Word is so very important to our lives. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to obey. Let our hearts be tender ground that the Word would sink deep in and bring forth fruit in our lives. Guide us that we would be those that hear Your Word and those that do them for Your glory, for, your, for a testimony of Your greatness, for the testimony of the fact that You can guide us and build us and sustain us in our life. Fill me this morning with your spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. That I would speak your words and your ways for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount with a familiar story about two builders. And these builders are similar in a lot of ways. Both build houses. Both build in similar locations. Both houses were likely... Uh, nearly identical in construction as far as the looks and the function went. Both houses went through storms. But that's where the, the differences or the similarities end. One house stands through the storm and the other house falls in the storm. And the house that falls, it's described as, and the fall of it was great. Right? And the fall being described as great indicates, I believe, a total collapse of the house. It didn't lose some shingles. It didn't suffer a little bit of wind damage. No, it completely collapsed. And there was nothing but wreckage and devastation left in the wake of this storm. Now, while Jesus uses the imagery of a house, He's really talking about our lives. We are all one of these builders or the other. Right? We are all either wise builders or we are all foolish builders. And we are all similar uh, as these two builders were, we are all building our lives on something. We are all building under similar circumstances and culture. And we all go through storms. The difference will be in how we deal with the storms and how we bear up underneath the storms. Some will go through those storms and they will come through on the other side with their faith intact, still serving and devoted to Jesus. But others will come out devastated and decimated. Have you ever wondered why some Christians can go through tremendous trials, come through with amazing testimonies, and a faith that is stronger than ever and a deeper commitment to Christ they've ever had, while others are nearly destroyed by their trial and crash in horrific defeat? What makes the difference? Jesus explains it is the foundation that they build on. 
Now, it's my understanding that the climate in Israel is very similar to what we have here in real man's land. It is usually very dry, so that when it rains a lot, it takes a while for the ground to absorb the water, and it makes flooding come easily under heavily under heavy rains. And because of this, a builder had to be careful about how they built and where they chose to build. If a house was not constructed properly with a good solid foundation, it would be destroyed in the flood. A builder had a choice when deciding to build the house. He could dig down deep and find a rock and, and build a secure foundation for his house. Or he could stomp around and say, well, the sand looks good and it feels pretty solid to me and build on that. What Jesus is getting across to us is that just as a builder has a choice about the foundation for his house, we have a choice about the foundation of our lives. If we are all building our lives, we are all building on one foundation or another. We can build on the sand, on the shifting sand that will not allow us to weather the storms, or we can build our lives on a solid foundation that will withstand the storms of life. A lot of things people would say, are the rock and the foundation that we could build our lives on. But we don't have to guess and wonder because Jesus makes it clear. Whoever hears these things of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Right? In order to build our lives to last, to stand, we have to build them on the Word of God. Right? So a life built on God's Word is a life built to last. The Word of God is the solid rock we must build our lives on if we intend to be able to stand against the storms of life when they come. But how do we do that? How do we build our lives in such a way that we can truly say, my life is built on the rock? I think there are three truths that we learn from this passage and from Scripture. The first is we study God's Word. To build our life on God's Word, we, we have to know God's Word. I mean, there's just no way to, to build on the Word of God unless we know the Word of God. But to know the Word of God, we, we actually have to, to study God's Word. Right? And that's a key thing. We have to... To study it so that we can know it. Because what I'm talking about by, by knowing God's Word so that our life can be founded upon it, I'm talking about more than being able to quote a few facts. right? To know God's Word, we do have to have a good working knowledge of what the Bible says, but I'm not talking about the kind of trivia things that we often want to know that we can you know, sound cool with our knowledge. Right? I'm not talking about being able to name the twelve disciples or being able to name the twelve tribes of Israel or, or being able to list the minor prophets in order. Now, no, that's bad. And it's good to know God's Word in that way. But the reality is, being able to name the twelve disciples and the twelve tribes is not going to help you withstand the storms of life. But if we are going to stand and to know God's Word, then we have to be able to answer fundamental questions of life. Does the Scripture promise health and wealth to those who follow Jesus? Because some say that it does. And if I build my life on that and a storm comes in, my life will be destroyed. Does following Jesus mean that I'll have a problem-free life? People say that. And if I build my life on that, how will I respond when a storm and a problem comes? Why did Jesus die? Man, if we don't understand from Scripture why Jesus died, we cannot possibly begin to even remotely claim our lives are built on the Word of God. Why is the resurrection of Jesus important? Again, if I don't know the answer to that from the Bible, I cannot even remotely say my life is founded on the rock. Will I ever stop struggling with sinful desires? Hey, the answer to that question, I mean, that is a, a storm that we have to endure all on its own. The answer to these questions and many, many more are clearly 
answer in God's word. But we will never know the answers to those questions and all the others unless we study the word. But it's not just me saying we should study. God says we should study. Paul said that we are to be diligent to present ourselves approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now there's three facts from this that we're going to quickly hit and maybe later come back to in a certain another sermon. Notice first we are told to be diligent. Other translations use the word work hard. Our study of Scripture, it requires diligence. I mean, is there is there anything in life that you're not naturally good at, that you get good at without diligence. Doesn't everything that we're to be, get good at, doesn't it require us to do it over and over and over and over, to be diligent, to work hard at it? I mean, what's the difference between the way I shoot a basketball and the way a high school basketball star shoots a basketball? About 30 hours of standing out on a court shooting a basketball. Working hard to do that, to make the basket, makes the difference. Working hard to study the Bible makes the difference on whether we know it and our lives are built upon it. And unless you think I'm taking that too far, we are also called workers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker. And worker in this context is regarding God's Word. But it's not regarding, in this particular verse, sharing the Gospel, active in church, using our spiritual gift. We are to be a diligent worker regarding the Word. So you and I, if you're a disciple of Jesus this morning, then in God's eyes you are a worker. And your job, your work for God is to study His Word and He expects that you would be Diligent at that. Why? So that you can rightly divide it. And rightly divide essentially means be able to explain it. Be able to understand it. Be able to explain it. Do you know why cults are able to draw away people into their unbiblical doctrine. Because those people don't know the truth. They're able to twist Scripture. They're able to minimize other Scripture. They're able to, to say, well, what about this and what about that? And the person who is not a diligent worker does not understand, cannot refute it, and is led away into damnable error and destroyed. People will come to us They will come to you as a believer in Jesus Christ and they will say, hey, you go to church. Why did Jesus die? Why is the resurrection important? If I'm a good person, why do bad things happen? Those answers are all in here. And you you and I are meant to be diligent workers that can properly answer those questions. It takes effort. It's more than reading a devotion. It's more than listening to a sermon. It is consistently studying the Bible to learn all that you can. If you want to build your life on God's Word, then you must be diligent to put forth the effort to be a worker approved to God who can rightly Understand and explain God's Word. That is for every single disciple of Jesus. Now, I want to... Many of you, I'm sure, already study the Bible. But for those that may not and don't know how to start, let me just give you some practical tips on how to do it. One, commit to studying 30 minutes a day. It's like half an episode of Desperate Housewives. But 
Every day, I'm going to spend at least 30 minutes in the Bible. 30 minutes. Not, not the Bible and TV. Not the Bible and Facebook. Just 30 minutes with me and God in the Word. Right. Secondly, have a plan. Now, and what I mean by that is, don't just come in every day and be like, okay, toss your Bible... Oh, today I'm in Psalm 128. Tomorrow I'm in Zechariah. This time I'm in this. Right? What I mean is have a plan. Where are you going to study? What are you going to study? Once you finish this, where are you going? Here's what I would recommend if you don't already have a plan. For, I would say start by reading a gospel and a psalm. Right? That every day I'm going to read a chapter of a gospel and a chapter of a psalm. And with the Gospels, I would recommend starting in Mark, simply because in my mind, Mark it's short. And to me, I think Mark is the Jesus is awesome Gospel. He is powerful. He does great things. Such a faith-building book. When you finish with the first Gospel, go to Acts. Because the Gospels tell us about Jesus and who He is and what He did. Acts tells us about what that meant to those who knew Him initially and how the church was formed. After Acts, maybe go back to another gospel. And after you read that gospel, then go to the book of James. Because James is a very practical book. It's just like, here's how you live as a disciple of Jesus. Then after James, go back to the gospel. And just go back and forth like that. And then as you read that, also read a psalm. Because psalms are, are worship. They are prayer. They are the, the innermost journal thoughts of heroes of the faith. And in that we see that they struggled like we struggle, that they got discouraged, that they poured their hearts out to God, and we will learn to worship, to pray, and to love our God as we should. Have a plan. Pray before you start. Not a big long prayer, but just a just a minute or so to, to focus your mind and your heart on God and ask Him, To open you up so that you can receive what He has for you that day. And then write down your observations. Journaling is a great tool to help you in your devotional time. I will say, I did not really start journaling until I was a pastor. And I have grown more in the probably... 15 years that I have been journaling my thoughts than I did in all of the years prior to that. Taking the time to write down what God shows me, to make it into a prayer, to write down action points, questions, all of those things has helped me more than anything else ever did. And I'm not telling you you have to journal, but I'm saying if you're really serious about growing, Committing your life to Christ. Growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. Building your life upon the rock. You need to journal. The thoughts that you think about that you're seeing. They they disentangle themselves as you write out what God is saying to you. And it's good to be able to go back and say, oh yeah, that's good, that's right. All of that stuff, it helps. A life built on God's word. It's a life built to last. And to build our lives on God's Word, we must study God's Word. Secondly, believe God's Word. We we won't build our lives on God's Word if we don't believe it. And and that may seem basic. And in some ways it is. But in other ways, it's actually a very deep statement. Because there is a huge difference between knowing God's Word and believing God's Word. Many atheists know a great deal about God's Word. Many atheists have studied God's Word enough to be able to to quote the Bible and even be able to explain core doctrines of the Christian faith. I I know I've shared this before, but let me share my favorite quote along these lines. Well, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, And that He rose again from the dead. And by His sacrifice, our sins are forgiven. You are really not, in any meaningful sense, 
of Christian. That's a great statement. I mean, that statement is so theologically accurate, it could have been written by any conservative evangelical preacher, author, writer, believer in Jesus that we know. But it was actually written by an atheist named Christopher Hitchens. In fact, he was such an atheist that he called himself an anti-theist. He was not just against our God, but all God's. And the interesting thing, this this is a rabbit we don't have time for, but I'm going to take it anyway. The fun thing about that quote is, he told it to someone who professed to be a Christian. He was doing an interview with a liberal Christian magazine. And the person interviewing him said, now I'm not one of those fundamentalist Christians who believes that everybody has to believe in Jesus or they're not saved. And an anti-theist rebuked this person With a solidly, theologically, biblically accurate statement. He knew God's word enough to be able to accurately articulate the uniqueness of Christ and the necessity of Christ for the salvation of our sins. But that knowledge did him no good. He never embraced Jesus Christ as his Savior because he did not belief. For Christopher Hitchens, the anti-theist, his problem was not a lack of knowledge. His problem was a lack of faith. As we've seen, we have to study God's Word to know God's Word. But studying and knowing won't benefit us if we don't believe. Our study must always be mingled with faith. And there are at least two aspects of believing God's Word that must be present before God's Word will do us any good. First, we have to believe it's right. I mean, we we have to believe that God's Word is right. We'll, We'll talk about this more in our next point. But we have to believe that whatever it says, about whatever it says it about, That is the right statement. That is is what's true. And then we have to believe that it's real. Believe it's right. Believe it's real. I'm afraid that too many believers today see God's Word as a pie-in-the-sky ideal, but not the reality of how things can be and how things should be. They see it and they say, yes, that's, that's what should be. That's right. But there's just not any reality to that. We can't actually live that way. Those sort of things don't actually happen. That's, that's right, but I don't believe it's, it's real. But what if? What if everything Scripture talks about, what if everything Jesus said, what if it wasn't a pie-in-the-sky ideal? What if it was just really practical about This is what's right. And this is what's real. And this is how you are supposed to live. But we have to believe that. Do you believe that God's Word is right? Do you believe that God's Word is real? Now, theoretically, I think if if I went around the room, we would probably all say, yeah, if nothing else, because we're put on the spot and that's what we're supposed to say. But it's really kind of theoretical until we look at some concrete examples. So let's just think about what we've talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Turn to Matthew 5, 7 and 8. Actually, I'm sorry, 7 and 9 is what I wanted. Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Of course... The world doesn't value mercy, does it? No, if someone makes a mistake, you blast them. I mean, you blast them, and you blast them, and you blast them, and then when you're through blasting them, you you take a break, and then you blast them some more. The world doesn't value peacemakers. The world is filled with trolls who want to stir up strife, discontent, and anger, and hatred all the time. So, when it comes to how we interact in the world, is it real that that merciful is what we're supposed to be? Is that right? Is that what's right at all times to be merciful? 
Is that what's real? That at all times we really can and really should be merciful. Is it right that we as disciples are to be peacemakers, not strife stirrers? Is it right that that's what we're supposed to be? Is it real that that's how we're supposed to live? Do we believe that? Um, I have so many instances here. Let me just quickly. 13 and 14. You're the salt of the earth. 14, you're the light of the world. Salt talks about our, our influence. Disciples of Jesus are to have a righteous influence everywhere we go. Light is our testimony. Believers in Jesus, disciples of Jesus, are to have a righteous testimony everywhere we go. Do you believe that's right? Do you believe it's right that no matter where you go, who you're around, you are meant to have a righteous, godly influence on their lives and on the situation you're involved in? Do you believe it's real that you can? Do you believe it's right that no matter where you go, you are to have a righteous testimony that they would see you and know that you're a disciple and a follower of Jesus and that would mean something? Do you believe it's real that you really can be that way? Look at 5.31 and 32. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever commits, whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, this isn't all that the Bible says about divorce and remarriage and adultery and all of those things. The picture here is that marriage is significant and important. And there's not just a quick, easy way out because it's uncomfortable and difficult. You believe that's right? Do you believe that's real? That's really the way we're supposed to live with a till death do us part type of mindset. Do we? Look at Matthew 6, 19 and 21. 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For your treasure is, there your heart be also. Is it right for us to treasure things in eternity more than things now? Is it right for us to focus our lives on eternally significant things rather than temporally pleasing things? Is that right? Because that's what it teaches. Is it real? Is it real in that this is how I can live and how I should live? It's not a, that's the pie in the sky, boy, that would be great, but that's nobody can live that way. Is it real? That's really how I can devote and, de- and live my life. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and everything else will be added to you. Is that right? That our primary focus in life is to be the kingdom of God and, and God's righteousness? Not, not worldly success, not a big bank account, not a cool car, not popularity, not sexual pleasure, but, but the kingdom of God? Is that right? Is it real that I can live that way? That's what belief is. Look at Matthew 7, 11. Therefore, what you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. We call that the, the golden rule. We always tell it to our kids. But do we believe it's right for us as adults? What we want to do, other people to do us, how we want them to treat us. It's how we ought to treat them. If I don't want to be gossiped about, I shouldn't gossip about people. If I don't want to be judged, I shouldn't judge people. If I don't want to be condemned, I shouldn't condemn people. If I want to be given the benefit of the doubt, I should give others the benefit of the doubt. Do we believe that's right? Do we believe it's real that I really can live by the golden rule in my life? Do you believe God's word is real? Do you believe God's word is right? If you do, that leads us to the third way we build our life on God's word. Obey God's word. Both builders hear the word. Whoever hears these sayings of mine. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine. Verse 24 and 26. So the picture here is not of one being a faithful disciple of Jesus. And the other a dirty, rotten, wicked sinner. Both hear the word. In this context, he's talking about his disciples. And even the crowds that are around him. Right? So... Put it in our context, both builders go to church. Both builders may even read God's word outside of church. 
But still, one house survives and one house is decimated. What makes the difference? It's in what they do with God's word. Verse 24, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them. Verse 26, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does not do them. See, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where our study is to lead to. This is where belief is demonstrated. Our study of God's word is not meant to fill our heads with all kinds of knowledge alone. Anyone can sign an affirmation of believing the inspiration and the authority of Scripture. A few weeks ago, a Christian denomination met to determine whether one sin was really a sin or not. And every person who spoke at that conference would sign a document saying they swear and affirm they believe the Bible to be the Word of God. They would claim to believe it. They knew it. I can promise you many of those men, I have read some of those who spoke in favor of homosexuality. I've read their writings. They know the Bible. They claim to believe the Bible. So what's the difference between them and those who opposed it? Some lived the Bible. And some didn't. This is where study is meant to lead. This is where belief is fleshed out. Those who live what the Bible says, their houses are built on the rock and they will survive the storms. Those who do not live what the Bible says are not building on the rock and their lives will not survive the storm. We have to be doers of the word and not hearers only. In order for my life or your life to be the rock we build on, we have to do what it says. I mean, there's just no other way. And for us to do what the Bible says, it means that we have to choose it's the authority in our lives. And that, that's huge to get. Right? Because if I'm going to obey the Bible, then I have to say it is the authority over my life. It's the authority over what I believe. It's the authority over how I act. It's the authority over what I value. It is the authority over every area of my life. Those who hear and don't do, rather than seeing the Bible as the authority over them, they see themselves as the authority over the Bible. Those who want to justify sin can take you to the Bible where it says that's a sin and they can then begin to explain, oh no, what Paul meant was, what Jesus meant was, what it said. In the context of history, this has happened. Oh, you just don't understand. Well, some things we'll just never understand, but that clearly can't be what's right. What are they doing? In all of those things, what they're saying is, this isn't the authority. I am. Trust me to tell you what's right. But we don't need scholars for that. We do that in our own lives. We look at something and it says turn the other cheek. And we say I don't want to turn the other cheek. Because they did that and I'm going to get them. What are we saying? I'm the authority, not Jesus. Right? That's, that's what it is. And so to obey God's word, it must be the authority in our lives. And that's really the way God intends it to be. God intends that this would be His Word. And we would submit to His Word because it's His Word. And allow it to be the authority over all aspects of our life. Let me show you what that looks like. Familiar passage. Paul gives us areas of life where God's Word is, is profitable. And what he means is that it's the authority there. So what happens is, we demonstrate that God's Word is the authority in our lives in these areas when we obey God's Word by bringing our lives into conformity to what God has said in these areas, even when it's contrary to what is seen in our culture. The first one he mentions is doctrine. Now, doctrine is essentially what we believe 
that God is like. And God wants us to know what He is like. And God wants us to know what people are like. He wants us to know why as humans we can do really good things and why as humans we can do really bad things. He wants us to know about salvation, that it comes through faith alone, grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone. He, he wants us to know all of these things, how we should live, what we should avoid, what is, what is acceptable, what is not acceptable, what is best in life. And all of these things are revealed to us in God's Word. From God's Word, we learn to think rightly about God, about salvation, and about life in general. And that's incredibly important because culture... Culture almost always contradicts what God says about all of these issues. Culture usually tells us we cannot actually know God or what God is like. Culture tells us that we began as primordial sludge and evolved into humans through random chance. Culture tells us that people are basically good and their main problem is a lack of resources or education. Culture tells us that all religions are either equally true or equally wrong, but no one religion is the right way. Culture tells us that as long as we aren't hurting someone, then no one has any right to impose any sort of restraints on our lifestyle. That's what culture says. And yet, all of that is completely contrary to what God has revealed to us in His Word. So knowing that, what will be the authority in our life about what we believe about God, salvation, and life? Will culture's view be our authority and lead us to conform to the world around us? Or will God's Word be the authority and lead us to conform to what He has revealed in His Word, causing us to be like Jesus? We demonstrate the authority of God's Word when we Obey God's word in our doctrine. When we say, yes, I believe this about God, about salvation, about the beginnings of man, the end of all things, heaven, hell, and everything in between, because thus says the word of God. In that moment, I'm obeying the word and demonstrating that it is the authority over my life. Reproof is the second thing that it mentions. Now, reproof basically means to show us what's wrong. God's Word shows us what's wrong. That's what truth does. We believe one thing about God, salvation, life in general, and we come to the Word and the Word says, no, what you believe is wrong, what you're doing is wrong. So what will we do? And, and this is going to happen to all of us. Right? There's, there will never be a time in this life where Scripture does not reprove you. It's just not going to happen. Right? You are not like Jesus completely. There are areas of your life that are wrong. And so Scripture will convict you and deal with you and tell you you're wrong. It just will. So what are you going to do when that happens? You're going to slough it off and ignore it and go on the way you're living? Because, I mean, culture says it's okay to act that way. Or are you going to Repent of what you've done that Scripture is reproving you of. And seek to bring that area of your life into conformity to God's Word. When we repent, when we determine I'm going to believe what the Bible says, I'm going to live the way the Bible says, I'm going to act the way the Bible says, because I've been wrong. Then I am demonstrating the authority of God's Word over my life as I obey it. We demonstrate the authority of God's Word over our lives when it can reprove us of anything. And we obediently respond with repentance and confession. Any other response shows that something other than God's Word is the authority on my, in our lives. Correction. God's Word not only shows us when we're wrong, it shows us how to fix what's wrong. Right? It doesn't just... Point out you're wrong here and then leave us alone. It says you're wrong here. Here's what you believe. Here's what you should believe. But now, correction implies change. And this is where it gets tough. Because as God's Word reproves us and corrects us, God will use His Word to reprove and correct us over any area of our life. 
And often over areas of our lives that we don't want to make changes in. God can use His Word to tell us, to correct us about relationships we're in. You shouldn't be that friends with that person. They shouldn't have that kind of influence on your life. What you're doing in that relationship with them is unrighteous and you should stop. God uses His Word in those ways. How we spend our, our time or our money. How we raise our kids. What we watch on TV. The way we talk. What we're going to do with our lives. There is no area of our life that God cannot use His Word to correct. So what will we do? What are we going to do when God's Word corrects the way we think, what we're doing, or what we have planned? Will we keep on the way that we are? Or will we make the changes that God's Word says that we need to make? We demonstrate the authority God's Word has in our life when we obey God's Word. Change our belief, our behavior, our values, our preferences, our attitudes, our actions, or our reactions to fit with Scripture. Any other response shows that something other than God's Word is the authority in our lives. And the last one is instruction in righteousness. Through God's Word, we're taught how to become righteous, how to live righteous, and how to have righteous relationships and how to react in a righteous way to stressors in life. Culture's idea about righteousness and God's idea about righteousness are vastly different. Culture teaches we are righteous by nature unless we do something really bad. God's Word teaches we are unrighteous by nature and we have to come to Jesus for that to change. Culture teaches us that we can be righteous just by being a good person as culture defines it. But God's Word says there is no way to be righteous apart from being made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. And that once He has made us righteous, we are to strive for what He calls holiness, difference from the world. Culture teaches us that a righteous relationship is a relationship that is mutually pleasing. That's it. But God's Word teaches us that there are some people that we should not be in a relationship with. And there are some things we cannot do in any relationship outside of marriage. Culture tells us we can blast and belittle anyone who disagrees with us for any reason. But God's Word says that we are to be merciful and peacemakers. So what do we do? When our idea of righteousness, or culture's idea of righteousness, clashes with God's idea of righteousness, as revealed in His Word. Will we keep on following the mindset of the culture and live with a worldly righteousness? Or will we make the necessary changes to have to live in the righteousness that God's Word describes? We demonstrate the authority God's Word has in our life when we obey God's Word by letting it determine what is righteous. Any other response shows that something other than God's Word is the authority in our life. So if we want our life to be built to last, it has to be built on God's Word. That means we study. It means we believe. It means we do. That's the only way we're going to make it. It's the only way we'll be built to last. So let me end with a question. Is your life built to last? Not a veneer, not an appearance, but built to last. There's a church in Shawnee, Oklahoma, that for years met in a tin building, kind of like our school building back here. And then I went by not long ago, and it's all rock. They've rebuilt it. And I thought, Man, that's great. That's not amazing. That's a lot of money that they spent to rebuild the church like that. And then one day as well, we were coming home. I noticed that the rock only went back so far. And the rest of it was the old building. The, the church really isn't built out of rock and brick and mortar. It's still a tin building, but they put a, a veneer, a, 
an outer layer of rock so that it looks like a rock building. But it's really still just the same metal building that it was. You and I, we can do something similar in our lives. We can put on a veneer of studying God's Word and a veneer of believing God's Word and obeying God's Word. And and the reality is we can fool virtually everyone around us in our life. We don't fool God, but that's really not even the point with this issue. The point is we don't fool the storms. Because when the storms come, that veneer, it's not going to hold. It's going to rip away. It's going to be torn up. And we're going to be left devastated. Don't settle for an appearance of devotion to God's Word. Don't settle for a veneer of building your life on God's Word. Do it for real. And in the end, and I'll close, in the end the choice is yours. not mine it's not your spouse it's not your parents it's yours you are responsible for your spiritual life you are responsible for building your life on God's word when you come here I will preach the word to the best of my abilities every single time but if this is all you're getting and all you're doing You are not building your life on God's Word. And it is not my fault. It is not the church's fault. It is not the Sunday school teacher's fault. It's not the deacon's fault. It is your fault and your fault alone. You must choose to make yourself responsible. And say, if I want my life to be built on God's Word, then I will do it. No excuses, no justifying, I will do it. So the action I call all of us to take today is examine your life. Is it built on God's Word? If it's not, grow up and take responsibility. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today.